Now, Singaporeans uh, love acronyms because schools use them. For instance, they have words like PSLE, HBL, DSA, and then property agents, they speak TOP, OTP, ABSD. And then the youth also have their own IDK, 411, and TLDR. And so if you are my age, you uh, sometimes need to catch up to know what they mean so that you do not feel FOMO. Now today, as we arrive at Deuteronomy 6, if you cannot remember the main points of the previous five chapters, don't worry, because Deuteronomy 6 is the TLDR. It is the TLDR because this chapter contains the Shema. And Shema is not an acronym, by the way. Shema is the Jewish declaration of faith that we Christians come to call as the Great Commandment. And it's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, or rather, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So just leave that slide on for a while. Verse 4 states that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is a brief, compact statement that tells us who the Lord is. He is our Lord. He is one. And who the Lord is provides then the rational for the next verse, which is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This rational is a summary of all the commandments given to the children of Israel. And so the Shema is firstly a summary of who God is, followed by, secondly, a summary implication. That is why I say that Deuteronomy 6 is your TLDR. But then what do we understand by the phrase, the Lord is one? All right, there has been a long discussion and debate among OT scholars, and here are the possible meanings from what God has revealed of himself in Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 6. Firstly, the Lord is one speaks of his singularity, which means that there is no other besides him. And we see that from the first commandment. Ten commandments, the first commandment states that there is no other God besides him. Singularity, and we see that in Deuteronomy 5. Secondly, the Lord is one speaks of God's uniqueness. Uniqueness. There is no other like him. I mean, a God who takes for himself a people and then makes a covenant with them, that is unique. Thirdly, the Lord is one speaks of God's unity and integrity, that he is unchangeable. And so the promises that he gave to the forefathers, he will still deliver. And so you have singularity, uniqueness, and integrity. All these, perhaps, capture the meaning, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. And so what does this truth imply for God's people? Well, firstly, the Lord is one entails wholehearted devotion unto him. It means that we ought to give this Lord, who is one, 
wholehearted devotion unto him. And so we are told, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before or either between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the Lord is one entails wholehearted devotion unto him seen in the keeping of God's commandments in one's heart, and then diligently teaching them to the children. Now, certainly, Moses is not talking about nonstop teaching of God's laws, you know, that starts once uh, one is seated or starts walking or when lying at once waking. I don't think so. Nor is Moses being literal when he says that you ought to bind them and put them between your eyes. The point here is that teaching God's Word is to be intentional yet natural in everyday life. Intentional and natural in everyday life. And so how does that look like? So there's this author by the name of John Yonts who wrote a book entitled Everyday Talk talking freely and naturally about God to your children. And he writes, and he says, quote, When Moses tells us to impress God's commandments on our children, unlikely does this mean you quote the Bible all day or spout systematic theology in every conversation. So I have to ask Edmund Fong. I'm sure he doesn't do that to his kids. It does mean, however, that as you grasp a profound truth of God's word and find ways you find ways to explain it to your children so that your knowledge so that the wisdom that you gain from the study of God's word will become part of your children's too their lives too and John Yotes uh, cites an example he probably addresses the fathers and he says suppose you have planned a special day meeting guys for a round of golf and suddenly the rain poured and you looked out the window and you muttered and you said stupid rain and your child overhears and says what daddy and then you continue muttering and you say why couldn't it rain tomorrow and your child says daddy yes son what's stupid and you say no nothing just finish your homework and John Yon says, these unguarded moments present powerfully your view about God. Unguarded moments present powerfully your view about God. You could have used the occasion uh, uh, to present another teaching, which is, you see, child, a man plans his ways, but it is the Lord who determines the outcome. But sometimes... We love to complain about the weather, don't we? We curse it even. And that's why our children become very confused when you drag them to all-age service and you sing, He is the Lord of the sunshine and the Lord of the rain. <laughs> so parents, how is your everyday talk with your children? Let me try guess the standard lines. How was school? Finish your homework. Have you eaten? because 
many families do not have dinner together. And this reserves, is reserved for another sermon. How is your everyday talk with your kids? A wholehearted devotion to God entails intentional yet natural teaching of his words to the next generation. And because impressing God's word on our children is not limited to sending them to children's church, to Sunday school, praying with them during mealtimes, reading the Bible with them, it includes our speech, our deeds, our life. Because teaching our children about God is not just handing them the textbook, it is giving them the living textbook. And so the Lord is one entails your wholehearted devotion unto him and seen in the intentional yet natural teaching or impressing of God's word to the young ones. Next, the Lord is one implies soul credit. Soul credit. And so the verse tells us, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, then when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now you read this passage, take note, the phrase great and good cities should remind one of, of Egypt because Egypt is synonymous to great and good cities. You will read that in Revelation. But the cities of Egypt became great and good because, because of the slavery of God's people. The Hebrew slaves built Egypt, and they built it for the Egyptians. But then the great and good cities in the Promised Land are unlike Egypt because the children of Israel did not have to enslave for them. Instead, they are cities, they are good and great cities that they did not build, with wells that they did not dig, with vineyards and groves that they did not plant. So the action words used here, if you noticed, build, dig, plant, they are all labor verbs, labor verbs. They are actions, action words, that belong to slaves. So if the Egyptian children played the game, who am I? You say, I mix, I sift, I knead. Who am I? The answer is, I'm a baker. And then what's the answer to this question? I dig, I plant, I build. They would say Hebrew slave because these verbs belong to slaves. There seems, there seems to be a pun here. The intention is to tell Israel that these cities, unlike those in Egypt, these cities are not products of Israel's forced and oppressive labor. These cities, rather, are the Lord's gracious gift to his people, to the children of Israel. And they're from the Lord himself. And furthermore, once they settle in the land, of course, they continue building, planting, and, and digging, but they're no longer doing it as slaves. 
They're doing it now as freedmen. They're doing it now as their own masters. They're doing it now uh, enjoying the fruits and rewards of their own labor. But then who gets the credit? It is the Lord who freed them and gave them the cities. And so here is the reminder for them. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They ought not to forget that the Lord was their mover. The Lord moved their house from the house of slavery to now houses filled with good things that they can call their own. And so the warning is, do not forget the one who moved your house and gave you a new abode. And why the warning? Well, because in the words of C.S. Lewis, the air is thick in the land. The air is thick in the land. You see, prosperity and good life, they can fog one's mind. So I just, just recently recovered from my first COVID. It's not only COVID that can give you brain fog. Prosperity and the good life can fog one's brain. It could make one believe that it is one's own power, that it is one's own mighty hands, that got one their wealth and thus lift their hearts up. And so that is why in Deuteronomy 8, you find the restatement. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and all you have is multiplied, gold, silver, herd, flocks, then your heart be lifted up. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have given me this wealth. And so prosperity and the good life can fog one's brain. It can make you forget the one who must get sole credit for all these because the Lord is the one who changed their status from slaves to now freed men. The Lord is the one who changed their residences from the house of slavery to houses now they can call their own filled with good things. The Lord is the one who changed their fortunes from poverty to now prosperity. And had it not been for the Lord, the children of Israel will continue plodding, trapped, and oppressed in the land of Egypt. So the Lord is one implies that only one, the Lord, gets credit for all these. And this implication, my friends, uh, becomes more pronounced in the next verses when we hear the warning against idolatry. So verses 13 to 15 tells us, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name, you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Next point. The Lord is one, requires exclusive worship exclusive worship 
Now the word exclusive is, uh, it's not a very attractive term in many circles because it sounds bigoted, it sounds intolerant. But the reason why God requires exclusive worship to him and no other is because he is the rightful husband to his bride. And as a husband, God has every right to be jealous when his people two-time him. When his people uh, uh, spread their legs and commit uh, adultery, harlotry with other gods. This is the very language that is being used to describe their idolatry. That, that uh, they enjoy God, the God-given benefits, but they, they run after God. Because the Bible uses a marriage metaphor to describe the covenant between God and men. And God is a jealous husband who has every right to be angry when their people, when his people commit harlotry and idolatry. God's bride cheating on him, committing adultery, and God is jealous. Rightfully so, because he is the only husband to his bride, his people. Now, another reason why the jealous Lord demands exclusive worship is because, if you will, he actually owns the patent to being God. He owns the patent to being God, meaning that there is no other. And no, God will not accept merger offers from wannabe gods. No, he is one and only God. And so the children of Israel are warned not to go after the gods in the promised land. Now we read this portion and we say, well, yep, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to bow down to silver and gold idols that do not speak, that do not hear, that do not move. Now we think that it is easy to spot an idol and then avoid it. Yet, we must be warned that Idols can be very complex in the language of the esteemed late Timothy Keller. Idols, he says, are very complex. He calls them counterfeit gods, which are manufactured not by the blacksmith, but manufactured by our own hearts, because the human heart is an idol factory. If that's the case, what idol have you unconsciously created that you are now serving, that you are now running after, that you are swearing by, and even fear of losing? So Tim Timothy Keller says, slide comes up, an idol is anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. It is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It's a very good explanation and definition of an idol. He continues, he says, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, on it without a second thought. 
It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty and brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and your virtue, and even success in the Christian ministry. So of all that list that the late Keller laid out for us, which one is your counterfeit God? If you and I declare that the Lord is one, then he is more important to us than anything else. He is more important to us than anything else. If you and I declare that the Lord is one, then he is the one who absorbs our heart and imagination. Then he is the one who is central and essential to our life, that apart from him, there is no hope, either in life and in death. Because the Lord is one, he requires exclusive worship. Lastly, because the Lord is one, verse 16 tells us, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Now we all know the opposite of the word trust is, is distrust, right? But in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the opposite of trust is test. The opposite of trust is test. And that was what the previous generation did. They did not trust God. Instead, they tested him, tested him. And so it was their stop at a place called Rephidim where the people uh, got thirsty. And so they asked Moses for water to drink. So they said, Moses, please give us water to drink. No, that is not what they did. What they did was that they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt so that all of us may die here with thirst? Now, if you followed the Exodus account, this was not the first time the people grumbled. Because we know the people grumbled nonstop. They grumbled for water. They grumbled for food. They grumbled every single time. But how did the Lord respond each time? Well, the Lord, without fail, he provided their needs miraculously. And so having read those accounts, you would have expected that they would have learned their lesson, that they would have already trusted that the Lord will see to it that their needs are going to be provided. Yet, in Rephidim, they grumbled, and their grumbling was an expression of distrust and doubt towards God. Verse 7 of Exodus 17. And he called the name of the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? It's a mocking remark, isn't it? That remark was a test. It's an audacious expression of sus against the Lord. 
despite having seen what God can do. But the Lord is not to be tested because the Lord already has proven himself to the children of Israel from the day he took them out of Egypt. The Lord never failed to provide for them. There is integrity in God, in his faithfulness to his people. He is unchanging. He is consistent. There is no chink in him. There is no dent in him. He will never fade. Theologians call this attribute immutability. Immutability. That God is unchanging in his character, in his will, and in his covenant relationship. He is, he is one. He is one. And so the Lord is one, then, next slide, necessitates trust. Necessitates trust. When circumstances are trying, that's why we can look to him and even pray the Psalms, cry out to the Lord, because we know that although circumstances change, he does not change because he is unchanging. The situation has changed, but not the Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. And so when you and I declare that the Lord is one, what is the implication of that? It entails wholehearted devotion and obedience unto him. Seen in our intentional yet natural impression of God's word to the next generation. It implies that he always gets the sole credit that everything that we have, everything that we achieve, it is solely because of the Lord. It implies that he is, deserves exclusive worship because there is no other God. And it requires the closure of our idol factories and rid, get rid of the idols that steal our devotion to the Lord. It necessitates trust that no matter how our circumstances turn out, God's faithfulness, His steadfast love will never change. And we should never doubt Him, never distrust Him, and never test Him. <clears throat> Wholehearted devotion, soul credit, exclusive worship, trust. You put them together, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Question. You think the sermon was about to end, huh? Not yet. This is probably my longest sermon. <laughs> How does one teach this to children? The Lord is one. Therefore, we should love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. How does one teach this to children? Well, do not just make them memorize the Shema. Or do not just make them recite the Ten Commandments. Do not say, just do it because I told you to do so. Give the story behind it. Give the story behind it. Provide the meaning. Present the rational for it. And this is what the remainder of Deuteronomy 6 tells us, verses 20 to 25. When your son 
asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded us? Then you shall say to your son, Son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear him, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandments that the Lord, before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So what is the 411 behind why we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might? It is God's love. It is his promise. It is uh, uh, his rescue. It is his gifts. It is his laws for good life. But then give the story behind it. Because there is power in a story. There is a meaning in a story. So once I heard a member of parliament give a, a speech uh, to people, and after that we had dinner together. I was part of the dinner. And uh, in the speech, he told of a story of a bird who that uh, soaked its feathers in water and, and flapping its feathers uh, uh, furiously to try to extinguish the forest fire. And uh, it didn't help much, but the actions of the bird moved all the animals who now wanted to contribute in any small way to help put out the fire. And so what was the MP's point in his story? Well, he says that anyone can always make a small contribution to help. But why did he tell the story? Because people had told him, hey, that, that's a good story. And he shared he says, over many years, I have learned that people do not like to listen to government policies. <laughs> they do not understand policies, but they do understand a story. And they will listen to a story. Now, kids, too, do not like listening to laws, rules, and policies. Give them a story, a story that tells the gospel. And how is the gospel told in the Exodus story? You and I were slaves. You and I were slaves to sin. It was an oppressive life. But the Lord rescued you and me. And he now gives us his word. And his word is for our equipping and for our obedience and for our good. And when we follow and when we obey him, it will be righteousness for us. So don't just make the kids follow the law or obey rules or, or know the policies. Give the story behind it. Give them the W5. Here's an acronym for you. The who, what, when, where, why. So point them to the Lord who is one. Now in closing, what does the phrase, it will be righteousness for us, mean here in the last verse, in verse 25, where it says, 
when we do and obey the commandments, it will be righteousness for us. Now, the way to understand this is to see how the same phrase is used in other parts of Deuteronomy. So in chapter 24, Moses lays out the conduct with regards to giving a loan and getting a collateral or getting a pledge. Moses tells the lender never to barge in to the borrower's house to collect the pledge. Why? Because that would have been oppressive. So I read that and I recall vividly a scene when, that I saw uh, as a kid. My dad's business failed, his buyers defaulted, and so his suppliers had to come. The representatives of the suppliers had to come to our shop house and they started marking items for seizure. Dad did not explain to me or to my siblings what was going on, but the men's actions, they tell it all. It was humiliating. It was a stripping off of one's dignity. That is not to be the conduct of God's children. Rather, the lender is to stand outside the house of the borrower and wait for the borrower to bring out his pledge. And the common pledge in those days is the cloak. Right? He's to come out and give the cloak as a pledge. Now the pledge, rather the pledge, the cloak in those days served uh, multiple purposes. You know, in the, in the daytime, it could serve as a wear, outer wear, and then if you need to uh, carry some items, it becomes a tote bag. And then at night, it serves as a blanket. Because people in those days, they didn't have much stuff, uh, unlike we do today, right? Some of us have many bags, many blankets, yeah. More so for poor people in those days. And so the one single cloak served many purposes. Now, this cloak was commonly given as a pledge, and so God requires the lender to return back the cloak before nightfall in case the borrower wasn't able to earn enough money for the day to pay back the loan and redeem back his cloak. God wants the lender to still return the cloak for the evening. Why? Because God does not want the borrower to have nothing to cover himself in the cold of the night. And then he says, when the lender does that, it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. So what does that mean? It means that it is ethically right. It is the right thing to do. It is the right practice. It is the right response to the one who had mercy on them when they were oppressed slaves in Egypt, when they were poor slaves, unable to redeem themselves. Once poor, once slaves, now free, now well off, prosperous even, to be able to lend to others. And so the right response, the righteous thing to do, is to help the poor in one's midst. When God's children obey the commandments of the Lord, it will be righteousness for them. It is the right response to the Lord who loved them who carried them in his arms, who moved them from the house of slavery to houses now filled with good things, 
to love back the one who loved us first, to love him wholeheartedly with all our being, with all that we've got, is the right response. But they did not respond that way, did they? We don't respond that way either. Why? Because we are forgetful people. We are forgetful people. The good life that many of us enjoy blurs our memories. And then idols compete for our love for God. Is there anyone who loves the Lord with all heart, soul, and might, and so have righteousness in him? Thankfully, there is. His name is Jesus, God's Son. He is the man who loved the Lord wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly that he turned down the devil's offer of a glorious, pain-free life. Jesus is the man who loved the Lord with all his soul and obeyed the obedience that sinners could not. Jesus is the man who loved the Lord with all his strength that he obeyed God the Father to death on the cross, dying the death that he never deserved. Jesus' obedience is righteousness. It is man's right response to his God. And thankfully, the obedience of Jesus, his righteousness, can be credited unto anyone who places their faith in him. When you and I put our faith in Jesus, the righteousness of God becomes ours. We are forgiven. We have new life. And then his righteousness empowers us to do righteousness. That is to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Let us pray. Rescue us, Father, from the idols that compete for our love that rightfully belongs to you. Empower us to get rid of them so that we may wholeheartedly be devoted unto you. Believing indeed that the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and it is the right thing to do for us to love you back with our heart, soul, and might. Empower us, we pray, for our good and for the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.